Section 36 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 17. Part 4, Section 27. What? Does not the very name of ascension, so often repeated, intimate removal from one place to another? This they deny. Because by height, according to them, the majesty of empire only is denoted. But what was the very mode of ascending? Was he not carried up while the disciples looked on? Do not the evangelists clearly relate that he was carried into heaven? These acute sophists reply that a cloud intervened and took him out of their sight to teach the disciples that he would not afterwards be visible in the world, as if he ought not rather to have vanished in a moment to make them believe in his invisible presence, or the cloud to have gathered around him before he moved a step when he is carried aloft into the air, and the interposing cloud shows that he is no more to be sought on earth, we safely infer that his dwelling now is in the heavens, as Paul also asserts, bidding us to look for him from thence. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. For this reason, the angels remind the disciples that it is vain to keep gazing up into heaven because Jesus, who was taken up, would come in like manner as they had seen him ascend. Here the adversaries of sound doctrine escape, as they think, by the ingenious quibble that he will come in visible form, though he never departed from the earth, but remained invisible among his people. As if the angels had insinuated a twofold presence, and not simply made the disciples eyewitnesses of the ascent that no doubt might remain. It was just as if they had said by ascending to heaven, while you looked on, he had asserted his heavenly power. It remains for you to wait patiently until he again arrived to judge the world. He has not entered into heaven to occupy it alone, but to gather you and all the pious along with him. Section 28. Since the advocates of this spurious dogma are not ashamed to honor it with the suffrages of the ancients, and especially of Augustine. How perverse they are in the attempt, I will briefly explain. Pious and learned men have collected the passages, and therefore I am unwilling to plead a concluded cause. Anyone who wishes may consult their writings. I will not even collect from Augustine what might be pertinent to the matter, but will be contented to show briefly that without all controversy, he is wholly ours. The pretense of our opponents, when they would wrest him from us, that throughout his works the flesh and blood of Christ are said to be dispensed in the supper, namely the victim once offered on the cross, is frivolous, seeing he at the same time calls it either the Eucharist or sacrament of the body. But it is unnecessary to go far to find the sense in which he uses the terms flesh and blood, since he himself explains 
saying that the sacraments receive names from their similarity to the things which they designate, and that, therefore, the sacrament of the body is after a certain manner the body. With this agrees another well-known passage, quote, The Lord hesitated not to say, This is my body, when he gave the sign, end quote. They again object that Augustine says distinctly that the body of Christ falls upon the earth and enters the mouth. But this is in the same sense in which he affirms it is consumed, for he enjoins both at the same time. There is nothing repugnant to this in this saying that the bread is consumed after the mystery is performed. For he had said a little before, quote, As these things are known to men, when they are done by men, they may receive honor as being religious, but not as being wonderful. End quote. His meaning is not different in the passage which our opponents too rashly appropriate to themselves, namely that Christ, in a manner, carried himself in his own hands when he held out the mystical bread to his disciples. For, by interposing the expression, in a manner, he declares that he was not really or truly included under the bread. Nor is it strange, since he elsewhere plainly contends that bodies could not be without particular localities, and being nowhere would have no existence. It is a paltry cavil that he is not there treating of the supper in which God exerts a special power. The question has been raised as to the flesh of Christ, and the holy man professedly replying says, quote, Christ gave immortality to his flesh, but did not destroy its nature. In regard to his form, we are not to suppose that it is in everywhere diffused, for we must beware not to rear up the divinity of the man so as to take away the reality of the body. It does not follow that that which is in God is everywhere as God. End quote. He immediately subjoins the reason quote, One person is God and man, and both one Christ, everywhere, inasmuch as he is God, and in heaven, inasmuch as he is man. End quote. How careless would it have been not to accept the mystery of the supper, a matter so grave and serious? if it was in any respect adverse to the doctrine which he was handling. And yet, if any one will attentively read what follows shortly after, he will find that under that general doctrine the supper also is comprehended, that Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and also Son of Man, is everywhere wholly present as God, in the temple of God, that is, in the church, as an inhabiting God, and in some place in heaven, because of the dimensions of his real body. We see how, in order to unite Christ with the church, he does not bring his body out of heaven. This he certainly would have done had the body of Christ not been truly our food, unless when included under the bread. Elsewhere, explaining how believers now possess Christ, he says, quote, You have him by the sign of the cross, by the sacrament of baptism, by the meat and drink of the altar." End quote. How rightly he enumerates a superstitious rite among the symbols of Christ's presence I dispute not, but in comparing the presence of the flesh to the sign of the cross, he sufficiently shows 
that he has no idea of a twofold body of Christ, one lurking concealed under the bread, and another sitting visible in heaven. If there is any need of explanation, it is immediately added, quote, In respect of the presence of his majesty, we have Christ always. In respect of the presence of his flesh, it is rightly said, quote, Me ye have not always, end quote. They object that he also adds, quote, In respect of ineffable and invisible graces fulfilled, what was said by him, quote, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. End quote. But there is nothing in their favor. For it is at length restricted to his majesty, which is always opposed to body, while the flesh is expressly distinguished from grace and virtue. The same antithesis elsewhere occurs when he says that, quote, Christ left the disciples in bodily presence that he might be with them in spiritual presence, end quote. Here it is clear that the essence of the flesh is distinguished from the virtue of the spirit, which conjoins us with Christ when, in respect of space, we are at a great distance from him. He repeatedly uses the same mode of expression as when he says, quote, He has come to the quick and the dead in bodily presence according to the rule of faith and sound doctrine. For in spiritual presence he was come to them and to be with the whole church in the world until its consummation. Therefore, this discourse is directed to believers whom he had begun already to save by corporeal presence and whom he was to leave in corporeal absence, that by spiritual presence he might preserve them with the Father. By corporeal, to understand visible, is merely trifling, since he both opposes his body to his divine power, and by adding that he might, quote, preserve them with the Father, end quote, clearly expresses that he sends his grace to us from heaven by means of the Spirit. Section 29 since they put so much confidence in his hiding place of invisible presence, let us see how well they conceal themselves in it. First, they cannot produce a syllable from Scripture to prove that Christ is invisible, but they take for granted what no sound man will admit, that the body of Christ cannot be given in the supper unless covered with the mask of bread. This is the very point in dispute, so far as it is from occupying the place of the first principle. And while they thus prate, they are forced to give Christ a twofold body, because, according to them, it is visible in itself in heaven, but in the supper is invisible by a special mode of dispensation. The beautiful consistency of this may easily be judged, both from other passages of Scripture and from the testimony of Peter. Peter says that the heavens must receive or contain Christ until he comes again. Acts chapter 3 verse 21. These men teach that he is in every place but without form. They say it is unfair to subject a glorious body to the ordinary laws of nature. But this answer draws along with it the delirious dream of Severitus, which all pious minds justly abhor that his body was absorbed by his divinity. I do not say that this is their opinion, 
but if it is considered one of the properties of a glorified body to fill all things in an invisible manner, it is plain that the corporeal substance is abolished, and no distinction is left between his Godhead and his human nature. Again, if the body of Christ is so multiform and diversified that it appears in one place and in another is invisible, where is there anything of the nature of the body with its proper dimensions, and where is its unity? Far more correct is Tertullian, who contends that the body of Christ was natural and real, because its figure is set before us in the mystery of the supper, as a pledge and assurance of spiritual life. And certainly Christ said of his glorified body, quote, Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. End quote. Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Here, by the lips of Christ himself, the reality of his flesh is proved by its admitting of being seen and handled. Take these away, and it will cease to be flesh. They always betake themselves to their lurking place of dispensation, which they have fabricated. But it is our duty so to embrace what Christ absolutely declares, as to give it an unreserved assent. He proves that he is not a phantom, because he is visible in the flesh. Take away what he claims as proper to the nature of his body, and must not a new definition of body be devised? Then, however, they may turn themselves about. They will not find any place for their fictitious dispensation in the passage, in which Paul says that, quote, Our conversation is in heaven, from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, end quote. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We are not to hope for conformity to Christ in these qualities which they ascribe to him as a body, without bounds and invisible. They will not find anyone so stupid as to be persuaded of this great absurdity. Let them not, therefore, set it down as one of the properties of Christ's glorious body that it is, at the same time, in many places and in no place. In short, let them either openly deny the resurrection of his flesh, or admit that Christ, when invested with celestial glory, did not lay aside his flesh, but is to make us in our flesh his associates and partakers of the same glory, since we are to have a common resurrection with him. For what does Scripture, throughout, deliver more clearly than that, as Christ assumed our flesh when he was born of a virgin, and suffered in our true flesh when he made satisfaction for us, so on rising again he resumed the same true flesh and carried it with him to heaven. The hope of our resurrection and ascension to heaven is that Christ rose again and ascended, and, as Tertullian says, quote, carried an earnest of our resurrection along with him into heaven, end quote. Moreover, how weak and fragile would this hope be, had not this very flesh of ours in Christ been truly raised up, and entered into the kingdom of heaven? But the essential properties of a body are to be confined by space, to have dimension and form. Have done, then, with the foolish fiction, 
which affixes the minds of men as well as Christ to bread. For to what end this occult presence under the bread, save that those who wish to have Christ conjoined with them may stop short at the symbol? But our Lord himself wished us to withdraw not only our eyes but our senses from the earth, forbidding the woman to touch him until he had ascended to the Father. John chapter 20 verse 17. When he sees Mary, with pious reverential zeal, hastening to kiss his feet, there could be no reason for his disapproving and forbidding her to touch him before he had ascended to heaven unless he wished to be sought nowhere else. The objection that he afterwards appeared to Stephen is easily answered. It was not necessary for our Savior to change his place as he could give the eyes of his servant a power of vision which could penetrate to heaven. The same account is to be given in the case of Paul. The objection that Christ came forth from the closed sepulchre and came into his disciples while the doors were shut, Matthew chapter 28, verse 6, John chapter 20, verse 19, gives no better support to their error. For as the water, just as if it had been a solid pavement furnished a path for our Savior when he walked on it, Matthew chapter 14. So it is not strange that the hard stone yielded to his step, although it is more probable that the stone was removed at his command and forthwith, after giving him a passage, returned to its place. To enter while the doors were shut was not so much to penetrate through solid matter, as to make a passage for himself by divine power, and stand in the midst of his disciples in a most miraculous manner. They gain nothing by quoting the passage from Luke, in which it is said that Christ suddenly vanished from the eyes of the disciples, with whom he had journeyed to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, verse 31. In withdrawing from their sight, he did not become invisible, he only disappeared, Thus Luke declares that, on the journeying with them, he did not assume a new form, but that, quote, their eyes were holden, end quote. But these men not only transform Christ that he may live on the earth, but pretend that there is another elsewhere of a different description. In short, by thus trifling, they, not in direct terms indeed, but by a circumlocution, make a spirit of the flesh of Christ, and, not contented with this, give him properties altogether opposite. Hence, it necessarily follows that he must be twofold. Section 30. Granting that they absurdly talk of the invisible presence, it is still necessary to prove the immensity, without which it is vain to attempt to include Christ under the bread. Unless the body of Christ can be everywhere, without any boundaries of space, it is impossible to believe that he is hid in the supper under the bread. Hence they have been under the necessity of introducing the monstrous dogma of ubiquity. But it has been demonstrated by strong and clear passages of Scripture, first, that it is bounded by the dimensions of the human body, and secondly, that its ascension into heaven made it plain that it is not in all places, but on passing to a new one, leaves the one formerly occupied. The promise to which they appeal, quote, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, end quote, 
is not to be applied to the body. First then, a perpetual connection with Christ could not exist unless he dwells in us corporally, independently of the use of the supper, and, therefore, they have no good ground for disputing so bitterly concerning the words of Christ in order to include him under the bread in the supper. Secondly, the context proves that Christ is not speaking at all of his flesh, but promising the disciples his invincible aid to guard and sustain them against all the assaults of Satan and the world. For, in appointing them to a difficult office, he confirms them by the assurance of his presence, that they might neither hesitate to undertake it, nor be timorous in the discharge of it, as if he had said that his invincible protection would not fail them. Unless we would throw everything into confusion, must it not be necessary to distinguish the mode of presence? And indeed, some, to their great disgrace, choose rather to betray their ignorance than to give up one iota of their error. I speak not of papists, whose doctrine is more tolerable, or at least more modest. But some are so hurried away by contention as to say, that on account of the union of the natures in Christ, wherever his divinity is, there his flesh, which cannot be separated from him, is also, as if that union formed a kind of medium of the two natures, making him to be neither God nor man. So held Eutychus, and after him Severtus. But it is clearly gathered from Scripture that the one person of Christ is composed of two natures, but so that each has its peculiar properties unimpaired. That Eutychus was justly condemned, they will not have the hardihood to deny. It is strange that they attend not to the cause of condemnation, namely, that destroying the distinction between the natures, and insisting only on the unity of person, he converted God into man, and man into God. What madness, then, it is to confound heaven with earth sooner than not withdraw the body of Christ from its heavenly sanctuary. In regard to the passages which they adduce, quote, No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Unquote. John chapter 3, verse 13. Quote, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Unquote. John chapter 1, verse 18. They betray the same stupidity, scouting the communion of properties, idiomatum koinonian, which not without reason was formerly invented by holy fathers. Certainly when Paul says of the princes of this world that they, quote, crucified the Lord of glory, unquote, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, he means not that he suffered anything in his divinity, but that Christ, who was rejected and despised and suffered in the flesh, was likewise God and the Lord of glory. In this way, both the Son of Man was in heaven, because he was also Christ, and he who, according to the flesh, dwelt as the Son of Man on earth, was also God in heaven. For this reason, he is said to have descended from heaven in respect to his divinity, not that his divinity quitted heaven to conceal itself in the prison of the body, but because, although he filled all things, it yet resided in the humanity of Christ corporally, 
that is naturally and in an uneffable manner. There is a trite distinction in the schools which I hesitate not to quote. Although the whole Christ is everywhere, yet everything which is in him is not everywhere. I wish the schoolmen had duly weighed the force of this sentence, as it would have obviated their absurd fiction of the corporeal presence of Christ. Therefore, while our whole mediator is everywhere, he is always present with his people, and in the supper exhibits his presence in a special manner, yet so, that while he is wholly present, not everything which is in him is present, because, as it has been said, in his flesh he will remain in heaven until he come to judgment. Section 31. They are greatly mistaken in imagining that there is no presence of the flesh of Christ in the supper unless it be placed in the bread. They thus leave nothing for the secret operation of the Spirit, which unites Christ himself to us. Christ does not seem to them to be present unless he descends to us, as if we did not equally gain his presence when he raises us to himself. The only question, therefore, is as to the mode, they placing Christ in the bread, while we deem it unlawful to draw him down from heaven. Which of the two is more correct? Let the reader judge. Only have done with the calumny that Christ is withdrawn from his supper, if he lurk not under the covering of bread. For seeing this mystery is heavenly, there is no necessity to bring Christ on the earth that he may be connected with us. Section 32. Now, should anyone ask me as to the mode, I will not be ashamed to confess that it is too high a mystery either for my mind to comprehend or my words to express. And to speak more plainly, I rather feel than understand it. The truth of God, therefore, in which I can safely rest, I here embrace without controversy. He declares that his flesh is the meat, his blood the drink of my soul. I give my soul to him to be fed with such food. In his sacred supper, he bids me take, eat, and drink his body and blood under the symbols of bread and wine. I have no doubt that he will truly give and I receive. Only I reject the absurdities which appear to be unworthy of the heavenly majesty of Christ, and are inconsistent with the reality of his human nature. Since they must also be repugnant to the word of God, which teaches both that Christ was received into the glory of the heavenly kingdom, so as to be exalted above all the circumstances of the world, Luke chapter 24, verse 26, and no less carefully ascribes to him the properties belonging to a true human nature. This ought not to seem incredible or contradictory to reason, because as the whole kingdom of Christ is spiritual, so whatever he does in his church is not to be tested by the wisdom of this world, or, to use the words of Augustine, quote, this mystery is performed by man like the others, but in a divine manner, and on earth, but in a heavenly manner, end quote. Such, I say, is the corporeal presence which the nature of the sacrament requires, and which we say is here displayed in such power and efficacy that it not only gives our minds undoubted assurance of eternal life, but also secures the immortality of our flesh, 
since it is now quickened by his immortal flesh, and in a manner shines in his immortality. Those who are carried beyond this with their hyperboles do nothing more by their extravagancies than obscure the plain and simple truth. If anyone is not yet satisfied, I would have him here to consider with himself that we are speaking of the sacrament, every part of which ought to have reference to faith. Now by participation of the body, as we have explained, we nourish faith not less richly and abundantly than do those who drag Christ himself from heaven. Still, I am free to confess that that mixture or transfusion of the flesh of Christ with our soul, which they teach, I repudiate, because it is enough for us that Christ, out of the substance of his flesh, breathes life into our souls, nay, diffuses his own life into us, though the real flesh of Christ does not enter us. I may add that there can be no doubt that the analogy of faith by which Paul enjoins us to test every interpretation of Scripture is clearly with us in this matter. Let those who oppose a truth so clear consider to what standard of faith they conform themselves. Quote, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. End quote. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. 2 John, verse 7. These men, though they disguise the fact, or perceive it not, rob him of his flesh. Section 33. The same view must be taken of communion, which, according to them, has no existence unless they swallow the flesh of Christ under the bread. But no slight insult is offered to the Spirit if we refuse to believe that it is by His incomprehensible agency that we communicate in the body and blood of Christ. Nay, if the nature of the mystery, as delivered to us and known to the ancient church for four hundred years, had been considered as it deserves, there was more than enough to satisfy us. The door would have been shut against many disgraceful errors. These have kindled up fearful dissensions, by which the church, both anciently and in our own times, has been miserably vexed, curious men insisting on an extravagant mode of presence to which Scripture gives no countenance. And for a matter thus foolishly and rashly devised, they keep up a turmoil, as if the including of Christ under the bread were, so to speak, the beginning and end of piety. It was of primary importance to know how the body of Christ, once delivered to us, becomes ours, and how we become partakers of his shed blood, because this is to possess the whole of Christ crucified, so as to enjoy all his blessings. But overlooking these points, in which there was so much importance, nay, neglecting and almost suppressing them, they occupy themselves only with this one perplexing question. How is the body of Christ hidden under the bread, or under the appearance of bread? They falsely pretend that all which we teach concerning spiritual eating is opposed to true and what they call real eating, since we have respect only to the mode of eating. This, according to them, is carnal, since they include Christ under the bread, but according to us is spiritual, inasmuch as the sacred agency of the Spirit 
is the bond of our union with Christ. Not better founded is the other objection, that we attend only to the fruit or effect which believers receive from eating the flesh of Christ. We formerly said that Christ himself is the matter of the supper, and that the effect follows from this, that by the sacrifice of his death our sins are expiated. By his blood we are washed, and by his resurrection we are raised to the hope of life in heaven. But a foolish imagination, of which Lombard was the author, perverts their mind, while they think that the sacrament is the eating of the flesh of Christ. His words are, quote, The sacrament and not the thing are the forms of bread and wine. The sacrament and the thing are the flesh and blood of Christ. The thing, and not the sacrament, is his mystical flesh. Again, a little after, quote, The thing signified and contained is the proper flesh of Christ. The thing signified and not contained is his mystical body. End quote. To his distinction between the flesh of Christ and the power of nourishing which it possesses, I assent. But his maintaining it to be a sacrament, and a sacrament contained under the bread, is an error not to be tolerated. Hence has arisen that false interpretation of sacramental eating, because it was imagined that even the wicked and profane, however much alienated from Christ, eat his body. But the very flesh of Christ in the mystery of the supper is no less a spiritual matter than eternal salvation. Whence we infer that all who are devoid of the Spirit of Christ can no more eat the flesh of Christ than drink wine that has no savor. Certainly Christ is shamefully lacerated when his body, as lifeless and without any vigor, is prostituted to unbelievers. This is clearly repugnant to his words. Quote, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. End quote. John chapter 6, verse 56. They object that he is not there speaking of sacramental eating. This I admit, provided they will not ever and anon stumble on this stone, that his flesh itself is eaten without any benefit. I should like to know how they can find it after they have eaten. Here, in my opinion, they will find no outlet. But they object that the ingratitude of man cannot in any respect detract from or interfere with faith in the promises of God. I admit and hold that the power of the sacrament remains entire, however the wicked may labor with all their might to annihilate it. Still, it is one thing to be offered another to be received. Christ gives this spiritual food and holds forth this spiritual drink to all. Some eat eagerly, others superciliously reject it. Will their rejection cause the meat and drink to lose their nature? They will say that this similitude supports their opinion, namely, the flesh of Christ, though it be without taste, is still flesh. But I deny that it can be eaten without the taste of faith, or, if it is more agreeable to speak with Augustine, I deny that men carry away more from the sacrament than they collect in the vessel of faith. 
Thus, nothing is detracted from the sacrament. Nay, its reality and efficacy remain unimpaired, although the wicked, after externally partaking of it, go away empty. If again they object, that it derogates from the expression, quote, This is my body. If the wicked receive corruptible bread and nothing besides, it is easy to answer that God wills not that his truth should be recognized in the mere reception, but in the constancy of his goodness. While he is prepared to perform, nay, liberally offers to the unworthy what they reject. The integrity of the sacrament, an integrity which the whole world cannot violate, lies here, that the flesh and blood of Christ are not less truly given to the unworthy than to the elect believers of God, and yet it is true that just as the rain falling on the hard rock runs away because it cannot penetrate, so the wicked, by their hardness, repel the grace of God and prevent it from reaching them. We may add that it is no more possible to receive Christ without faith than it is for seed to germinate in the fire. They ask how Christ can come for the condemnation of some unless they unworthily receive him. But this is absurd, since we nowhere read that they bring death upon themselves by receiving Christ unworthily, but by rejecting him. They are not aided by the parable in which Christ says, that the seed which fell among the thorns sprung up, but was afterwards choked, Matthew chapter 13, verse 7, because he is there speaking of the effect of a temporary faith, a faith which those who place Judas in this respect, on a footing with Peter, do not think necessary to the eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood of Christ. Nay, their error is refuted by the same parable. When Christ says that some seed fell upon the wayside, and some on stony ground, and yet neither took root. Hence it follows that the hardness of believers is an obstacle which prevents Christ from reaching them. All who would have our salvation be promoted by the sacrament will find nothing more appropriate than to conduct believers to the fountain, that they may draw life from the Son of God. The dignity is amply enough commended when we hold that it is a help by which we may be engrafted into the body of Christ, or, already engrafted, may be more and more united to him, until the union is completed in heaven. They object that Paul could not have made them guilty of the body and blood of the Lord if they had not partaken of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. I answer, that they were not condemned for having eaten, but only for having profaned the ordinance by trampling underfoot the pledge which they ought to have reverently received, the pledge of sacred union with God. End of section 36. Recording by Michael Packard.